Amen. The Lord is making us all into a, a certain kind of people. And that's one way to describe what we're what we're trying to get at as disciples of the Lord Jesus. That in our pursuit of Christ and in our heeding of the word of God, the spirit of God is making us into a certain kind of people. Just hear Paul's words, Romans 12. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that by testing, you may discern what's the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We could use language like this from Romans 12 to say what the Christian life is endeavoring to do. We're seeking to be transformed in our mind and not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but to offer ourselves as a right and good response to the mercies of God. I appeal to you, Paul says, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. What we are doing is a response to grace. The Christian life is lived in response to what Christ has done. It is lived in response with gratitude and humility and pursuit and repentance and trust and hope. All of of these things that we are called to do are in response to the finished work of Christ. So we're not trying to complete the work of Christ with obedience. We're not trying to say Jesus has done so much and now our response is going to sort of cover the rest of things. We're trying to say we are in Christ by the grace and mercy of God. And that means something. It means something for our lives. It's not without effect. Instead, we say with James in his letter, that faith without works is dead. We're, we're eager to say that being found in Christ means something. And part of the Christian response in the life of the disciple is the trajectory of one's life to have a mind renewed. And I submit to you that one of the valuable roles of the book of Proverbs in our lives, one of the roles this book is to play for Christ's disciples, is to direct our minds to wisdom and away from folly, and that the truths of this book push against conformity to the world. What is one of the things Solomon is trying to get his young reader to do? Be transformed in the renewing of your mind and don't be conformed to this world. How about that? Like that's one way to try to summarize what Proverbs is doing. And that this writer, this wise king, for his reader, young reader, and then all the rest of us who have followed, we are those receiving these truths, pushing against conformity to the world and to cultivate a renewed heart and mind. One of the reasons Solomon's words are so helpful is because Solomon helps us see what we should love. We don't always love what we should love. Solomon's words and Proverbs help us see what we should despise and hate. We don't always hate the things we ought to hate. We should pursue certain things and we should reject certain things. Our instincts are not the authority on what those ought to be. Rather, the Word of God comes alongside recognizing we might find ourselves conform to the pattern of the world, and we need the Word of God to exhort us and to rebuke us, 
to come alongside with the merciful intervening grace of God and rescue us from our own folly. And the unit that we'll look at tonight in verses 13 to 18 is very much concerned with your inner life, what's going on in the heart, how we make discerning decisions, and what is indeed better. We could look at this unit of verses 13 to 18 in three parts. Verses 13 to 15 are about the heart. I want to highlight this word, heart. Verse 13, a glad heart and sorrow of heart. That's in verse 13. Verse 14, the heart of him. In verse 15, at the end, the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. These first three verses of our unit tonight, verses 13 through 15, are about the importance of the heart. And then verses 16 and 17, they're connected together with this language of better. Better is a little, in verse 16. Verse 17, better is a dinner of herbs. So verses 16 and 17 are about discerning what is better. And the connection with the heart language is our discernment is accomplished or exercised out of our own heart's understanding and state of wisdom, our view of God and His Word, what is instructing us and giving us counsel. We make decisions accordingly. And that means the importance of the heart is such that we make evaluations. And I wonder if we would see the way Proverbs sees things, that we need to be able to discern what is better and to do that. And so the importance of the heart, verses 13 to 15, discerning what is better, verses 16 to 17, and then an example of this. He specifies in verse 18, a person engaging in either anger, or a hot-tempered man it's called, or exercising self-control, he who is slow to anger, quiets contention. And I would submit to you that this is an example of how the state of one's heart in discerning what is better can be worked out in one's life. The issue of one's words in relationship with others. And speech and anger is certainly a very tangible and convicting area that Proverbs gets at all over the place. In verse 18 again tonight. So these three parts, discerning the heart, or excuse me, the importance of the heart, discerning what is better, and then the results of anger or self-control. Let's look at the importance of the heart. The heart in the Old Testament is not about the organ itself. It's a metaphor because it animates the body and without it, um, you you can see a, a lifeless result. And therefore, the state of one's heart becomes metaphorical in the Old Testament for the place of affections and decision-making, deliberation, that you're deciding within the heart. And this is why we're to love the Lord our God with all our heart. And this, this imagery, of this metaphor of the heart, is brought up here in verse 13 about your inner life. And a glad heart is contrasted by a sorrowful heart. It's the first thing we notice in verse 13 is that the first line is followed by a but, a contrast. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. I think the connection being drawn there is that our inner life and our countenance are connected. Now, I'm not saying you can't fool some people for some time and you can sort of put on a face. That's not what this proverb is observing. This proverb is observing the fact that how we are feeling inwardly, the state of our heart, whether we're glad, 
whether we're sorrowful, that that can show up. And you can notice this in people. You pass somebody in the store, or you see somebody in the neighborhood and they're walking around, and maybe just the state of their face invites a warmth. It, it, it might cause you to greet them eagerly, and you would even expect that they would greet you in return. It's just the, the, their demeanor that it seems to be. But we've also seen people, when we sort of cross their paths, maybe they're just walking around with a total scowl on their face. And, and we think, well, you know, maybe they're having a bad moment. Um, maybe they just don't even realize the countenance they're leaving on their face. But perhaps something more. Maybe they're incredibly overwhelmed and sorrowful. Maybe what I'm encountering here is a person filled with sadness. And the connection between your emotional state and your countenance is so human. This is such a human observation. And I don't think he's criticizing it. I don't think in verse 13 he's saying, sorrow of, sorrow of heart, your spirit is crushed. Stop it, suck it up, put on a glad face. Don't let anyone know there's anything going wrong. I don't think this is a criticism as much as it is a simple observation about how people work. That you can often encounter someone and get a sense from the way they present themselves that they might be having a wonderful time at this season of life or they might be so discouraged and despairing. A glad heart makes a cheerful face. But by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. And you can see that there are legitimate reasons for people to be discouraged and down in life. Life is hard. You don't meet people who are not carrying things. And I mean that figuratively. Every person we encounter is bearing their own sets of concerns and worries about their present or their future. Things that might keep them up at night. Certain stresses that they are shouldering might not be the same ones you're shouldering. But everybody that we encounter are going through things. And they've gone through things. And if we were to sit and share human experiences and stories with people whose lives we come across, we would recognize why it would make sense to us that someone has a crushed spirit when you start to hear what they've gone through. Or why somebody might be quite cheerful or glad because of something that's going on in their life that fills them with such gladness. This proverb is simply connecting the inner life of the person with how they're presenting themselves on the outside. So I don't take this to be a criticism as much as simply an observation about the importance of the heart. Because how you are on the inside affects you outwardly. How you are on the inside has a relational dynamic as well. More about the heart in verse 14. This is building together in verses 13 to 15, this heart metaphor. Our inner life is not to be one that just passively blows to and fro with the circumstances and conditions of life, but an inner life that is deliberate about something. It is indeed the case that conditions and circumstances and trials of life can cause one to have sorrow inwardly or gladness inwardly that shows up in our countenance. But the importance of the heart is that our heart need not be merely passive to things. Look in verse 14. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouths of fools feed on folly. This means that, okay, both the wise and the fool have hearts, but their hearts are not after the same thing. 
In verse 14 here, the heart of him who has understanding, that's a phrase in Proverbs to talk about the wise. This is not just understanding about any matter, socially, politically, some kind of intellectual topic. What does he have understanding about? Well, this is a verse in Proverbs. And opening in Proverbs chapter 1, a myriad of terms like understanding and, uh, and insight and wisdom and knowledge are all overlapping on the Venn diagram of language about knowing God and walking in communion with God. This is knowledge that is like wisdom. So the person who has understanding, what does the person who has understanding want? And the answer is more understanding. Does this seem paradoxical? You might think, okay, well, if they are wise, okay, they're wise. Like, why is it that they want understanding? But the person who has understanding has already gotten a taste of the goodness and the delight of truth. And they're not bored with that. In fact, they're not numb to it. They become more awakened to it. It induces within them a hunger. And they seek it. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge. So we can't control the things that are happening to us on the outside. So many conditions and circumstances that we simply persevere through and all sorts of conditions that we wish were other that are not ideal. But here we are within our heart and it's good to ask ourselves, okay, what is it that I'm seeking? Like when it comes down to it, at the core, what is it that I'm pursuing? Because the heart of him who has wisdom, the one who has understanding, that person wants knowledge. And this is not just any sort of knowledge. It's spiritual knowledge, a a knowing of God rooted in the fear of the Lord. And the Proverbs, when you look at the book as a whole, reveals to us why. Because to pursue wisdom is to have one's whole life affected by knowing God. That our friendships and marriages, our households, our occupations and vocations, our dealing with money, our parenting of children, our pursuit of this or that, all the different topics Proverbs addresses, wisdom affects all of them. And so somebody begins to grow in wisdom. One of the things they realize is, hey, you know what I need? I need to grow in wisdom. This is now like Christianity 101. This isn't like we grow in wisdom if you're just really, really serious about Jesus and and you just want to be a super zealous kind of Christian. This is someone who is wise, growing in wisdom. They seek knowledge, but the fool, the fool is contrasted here using the imagery of their mouths. The fools take in something as well. So the wise, they seek knowledge to take it in, to internalize it, that they might live out wisdom before God. What's the fool feed on? Well, the mouth of the fool feeds on folly. And I take their mouth here to be representative of their their pursuit of their eyes and their mouth, their hands, their life's direction. What What they're after is what is not good for them. And from time to time, we may have this realization if we're enjoying certain things that we know are not good for us. Or maybe even a doctor has to say to you because of some new medical thing you become aware of, this thing you enjoyed is no longer good for you. You know, To continue to go after this is actually to feed on what is now going to be harming you. And e- even at that, that um, bare analogy, here you have this escalated situation of feeding on folly that results in what? Well, feeding on folly will result in spiritual disaster. The mouths of fools Feed on folly. They have an appetite in their heart. They're seeking what is not good. In fact, foolishness is self-destructive. 
Foolishness is self-destructive. This doesn't remove the promise of divine judgment upon the wicked. It is to say, however, that to pursue a life and path of folly has consequences on the fool in the here and now as well. And Proverbs is very concerned that we not reap something that we have sown when we haven't thought the whole thing through. Don't we realize where it would lead? The mouths of fools, they take in what they shouldn't. They're after folly. In verse 15, the other, meta, the other uh, language about the heart that we add into verses 13 and 14 is this. Verse 15 says, All the days of the afflicted are evil, but the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. This is not a criticism. It is an observation in verse 15. In verse 15, the days of the afflicted, this could be tricky. Afflicted by what? Well, the word afflicted here has, has, uh, has to do with in a situation or circumstances that are difficult, oppressive, povertous. You can think about the ancient Near East and how so many wrecked and, and overcome with poverty in the ancient world would feel affliction in life because they lacked the kind of resources and connections to perhaps pull themselves from a situation or a season of life that they loathed. And the days of these afflicted, they're characterized by hardship, and that's what the word evil means. Here it's about the hardness of it, the undesirability of it, that the days of the afflicted are just undesirable and hard, distressing. Now, this is true not just in the days of Solomon. When people find themselves in circumstances and conditions that are overwhelming, that are povertous and distressing, they can feel like life is so hard. They can get a sense where day by day by day by day, week by week and month by month and year by year, it just feels like the most awful drudgery of life. That they can't ever get ahead. That sometimes it's two steps forward and three steps back. All the days for the afflicted can feel like this. But that's only part of the observation. Something else is going on in the last part of the verse. But the cheerful of heart has a continual feast. And I think there in the proverb, we've moved from something more material and circumstantial to something more spiritual and deeper. Here's the move. In verse 15, those who are afflicted in their days, they might not be enjoying what you would call a continual feast. They might be struggling to make ends meet in every single way all the time. But the cheerful of heart has something. So this is about an inner disposition. It's a heart that is cheerful, or you could even translate this a good heart. A good heart. And now even the Reformed theology within us might think, good heart, wait a second, wait a second, nobody has a good heart. What does this mean? What What is Solomon up to? We have wayward hearts. Come on, Solomon, you're a Calvinist. And he is. In verse 15, a cheerful of heart or good heart means someone's disposition or inner life that is directed to what is good. It's not because by nature this person isn't tempted to stray and prone to wander. One cheerful of heart or good who has a good heart is in verse 14, the one seeking knowledge. The one who has understanding. In other words, the heart of this person is about a good disposition toward God and his law. Their heart is not wicked before God. They've come to know God. They're redeemed by God. They are justified by grace through faith. They have indwelling sin. 
They are tempted to wickedness, but their heart is new. They follow what Paul would later say to the Romans in Romans 12, right? They want to be transformed in the renewing of their mind. They don't want to be conformed to the pattern of this world. They have a cheerfulness of heart, even if their conditions outwardly aren't what you wish they were. So what I think is being contrasted here is the inner spiritual attitude of an individual that transcends unideal circumstances. When I was growing up, there were signs that would uh, occasionally say things like, life is 10% of what happens to you, 90% how you react to it. You ever heard something like that? Just the importance of attitude, the importance of being able to respond well, knowing, listen, I can't control what's just happened, but I can think about how I'm going to respond to this. Now, I don't know if the 90-10% is the, is the right breakdown of the percentages, but don't miss the point. If you think, I think it's more like 80-20, okay, fair enough. The point, is, the point is, what can we deal with? Well, how we respond to things. And here's, here's a situation in verse 15 where there are hard days. There is a life that is facing affliction. But you know, the inner life doesn't have to be that way. What if we realize that in the world God has made, even in a Genesis 3 fallen world, that we can spiritually flourish in our knowledge of God, even in the, mid of, in the midst of great physical, economic, national distresses. The cheerful of heart has a continual feast. This is how I know it's figurative. Because nobody in the ancient world was just having a feast every day. Now, feasts were things that the rich could enjoy. Parties and lavish banquets that definitely were things that you would want to invite others to, to celebrate and even to showboat. But nonetheless, in verse 15, a continual feast, something else is meant. This has to do with a kind of life that is flourishing in the midst of evil days. In other words, what do we want our heart like to be in evil days? Afflicted days. Maybe we would consider that in 2023 we have days of affliction around us. Evil days and decisions. Cultural trajectories that deeply concern us. Well, you should just ask yourself, well, what about my heart, though? If I can't control everything or influence all that I wish I could, what am I, though, going to do? What am I going to seek? What am I going to love? And a good heart or a cheerful heart, it is what it is. It's the kind of heart that has been influenced by what is good and true and beautiful and wise and, and faithful. The Word of God. I mean, consider that when we look at Proverbs as a unit, we don't want to look at verse 15 without verse 14, right? In verse 14, this heart seeks knowledge. What's the effect of seeking wisdom from God? Well, that affects the heart. And that can stabilize a life when everything else seems like it's shaking. And we have many examples in church history of people who do. I think about a modern story of, of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. You know, Johnny Erickson Tata, at age 17, became a quadriplegic. At age 17, she misjudged the shallowness of water in the Chesapeake Bay, and after diving, she fractured her spinal cord. And she has lived, in the decades that have followed, in a wheelchair, very dependent on everyone. And when you listen to Johnny Erickson Tata speak, it is... It is stunning and moving in every way, listening to someone who's having a continual feast in difficult days. This is what her heart is thriving in. She said that when she gets to heaven, 
before the Lord Jesus, she's going to say this. I will say, Jesus, do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that has been a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. What an attitude. What an amazing heart disposition toward God in difficult circumstances, recognizing I can't always control the circumstances. So what is it that I will seek? What is it that I will pursue and love and cultivate? Because a cheerful heart can have a continual feast when everything else seems to be going wrong. So verses 13 to 14, when you think about the importance of the heart, oh my goodness, it's hard to overestimate how crucial it is that our inner life be cultivated by the truth of God's word and the corporate identity with the people of God that we would be exhorting each other and encouraging one another in evil days. All of this helps our discernment. We transition to verses 16 and 17 to be discerning of what is better. In verses 16 and 17, better is little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Now here, this language of little contrasted with great treasure is emphasizing worldly, physical, material things. And we know that worldly or physical circumstances have already been in view. We saw in verse verse, uh, 15 that the days of the afflicted are evil. And the afflicted there means those who feel like they are down and out in their circumstances. They can't get a leg up no matter what it seems. And they might have a little. But what's better? So he's, he's allowing us to consider these nuances here. If you were to just put before someone, would you rather have a little bit of money or a lot of money? Or just a little bit of possessions or a ton of resources? Well, well, the human heart might not think to themselves, oh, well, you know, either one, it doesn't really matter to me. I think, I think we would be naturally drawn to think I, I could see more usefulness for things in my life, perhaps, if I had these resources. In the midst of even our corrupted, sinful motives with things, even the, the initial faithful stewardship of what we would want to exercise might draw us to what is more, more, more. So the writer doesn't want us to get off, which is weighing it that way. He wants us to realize what actually matters more. And so he says in verse 16, here's what's better. He doesn't even say, here's a question. You go and think on it. He's just going to tell you what's better. And if we are those who believe the word of God, then we need to ask the Lord to conform our hearts that we would agree with the wisdom of Solomon. He says, here's what's better. A little with The fear of the Lord. And that is because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. Wisdom and knowledge in that way in the heart affect all of life. And therefore we see the most important reality is one's heart toward the things of God. There's nothing about any of us that is more paramount to God than the state of our heart toward him. And that is why Proverbs reasons this way. It says here's what's better. This isn't neutral. It's not a toss-up. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Now, the word trouble here is trouble associated with wicked decisions. 
It means the opposite then of the fear of the Lord. This is a lack of the fear of the Lord. This is a pursuit of great riches and wealth at any expense, living for money. And, you know, Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And people who have loved it have been entrapped in all sorts of snares and sins. And Paul exhorts those in his, in his audience and all of these centuries later to warn us against the stupidity of thinking money will satisfy our hearts. That is a dumb thing to think. And yet, and yet, all sorts of marketing everywhere in our culture are bombarding us with these messages that you know what you need to make yourself happy. You just need more of this or more of that, a little more of this and, and, uh, and a little greater amount of that. But instead, the scripture says, what matters more is our heart toward God and the things of God. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord because to know God outlasts the things of this world. I think this is why John tells his readers in 1 John 2, 15 to 17, don't love the world. Because it's so easy that the things of the world and the sinful dispositions of the human race would be the things that determine and guide our decisions. He says, don't don't live for that. Don't love it that way. Instead, fear of the Lord. Well, verse 16 is emphasizing this phrase, and that's such a big deal in Proverbs, isn't it? Proverbs 1 opens this way, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In Proverbs 9, we're told the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if that's true, then that's why the fear of the Lord is better. Because great treasure not only does not satisfy our hearts, there's no security in it. It doesn't last. We don't last. We die. And everything we've built and accrued, all of our great treasure, is left behind. What matters more? I think that's the the ability to engage in a spiritual calculus here. Do we have theological, biblical reasoning about life? Proverbs is trying to help us here. Proverbs is trying to help us look at life and say, am I pursuing what is better? And that's not great treasure. It's knowing God. It's pursuing God. And you realize here, okay, these are not things we haven't heard before. These are some of the most basic and fundamental truths that are part of what it means to grow as a disciple that you don't, you know, you're not a Christian 50 years and then someone says we shouldn't love money and you say, wait a second, (laughs) you know, you've never heard this before. Fear of the Lord, what is this? No, these are, these are the kinds of observations that are not groundbreaking, but they're so insightful to the human condition of what we need and what we think we need that we don't really need and where our hearts can be prone. We need Solomon to come along and give us truth that we already know. So much of discipleship can feel that way. Unearthing things and building on ideas that have already been brewing within us for years and years of hearing the word of God and being discipled. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Here's another better statement. Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred with it. A dinner of herbs is to picture something of very little. In other words, it's making the same point of verse 16, just with different words. Verse 16 is about a little. A little of what? Well, let's take an image of meals. And what's contrasted in verse 17 is this dinner of herbs, which may not seem like much, versus a fattened ox, and it's like... Hello, 
that's going to feed us beyond this meal, okay? Like, that's, that's a big deal. He says, okay, if you were to choose, and if you just had those options before he complicates it, would you rather have little to eat or much to eat and enjoy and to save and to invite others to? And you, you would immediately think, okay, well, then I can see so much advantage practically in long term about having more. And he says, now here's the twist. Would you consider the atmosphere of the home so that those you're gathering with at home or elsewhere, better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox and hatred? So what if you're sharing a meal and it's a fattened ox, but you're completely on the outs with everybody in the chairs? (laughs) There's hostility all over the table. No one's getting along. There's just conflict, but you know, you're just all eating silently, the fattened ox. And so he says, that's not what's better, is it? That's not what's better. Rather, healthy, thriving relationships. That's better than the most lavish meal. Because this is a relational term, isn't it? Love and hatred. Better is a dinner of herbs where you love the company you're with. Isn't it wonderful to share a meal with people and to have a meal with friends and to be able to, whether it's in your home or elsewhere, to sit with others and to ask questions and to hear answers and to fellowship. and to, we, we, we are made for this. We're such social creatures in this way. Now, I know introverts, extroverts. I'm just saying in general, the Lord has made us to be people who relate. And this means verse 17 is telling us that's better That's better than having so much to eat and hatred in the room. Therefore, discerning what is better is one of the roles Proverbs will help us, Proverbs will play in our lives to help us discern. Discernment comes as an effect on the influence of God's word and biblical reasoning and theological rootedness over time. That's why Proverbs isn't, you know, 30 or 40 verses long. This is a long book, and there's a lot of wisdom, and so much of these subjects are circled back to over and over again. That's so much of the way life is. Here we have the last example of, or or the last uh, part of the passage tonight, verse 18, one verse, and it's the results of anger or self-control. He says, a hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Now, he could just say, he could just say, be slow to anger. And we would recognize, okay, I mean, if that's an imperative, here's this biblical command, there would be good reason for it. Or he he could say, you know, don't be hot-tempered. And there are even New Testament commands that exhort us towards self-control. But what's helpful here is he doesn't just lay it out as an imperative. He tells you the incentive. What is it that you want to produce? So he says, here's what happens with hot-temperedness. It stirs up strife. No one ever says, hey, you know how everything took the best turn possible when we all lost our cool, got angry and screamed, things really worked out well. Instead, we recognize, no, that causes strife. That hot-temperedness and, and, uh, and rash speech, it involves the sin of the tongue. And we recognize that kind of unrighteous anger doesn't produce love. In other words, in verse 17, if... Better is a dinner of herbs where love is than a fattened ox with hatred. What is one of the things where strife and hatred and conflict can be cultivated? Well, turns out you and I have some influence on this. 
that we can actually influence the people in our lives toward a more peaceable and healthy, thriving relationships by how we speak. And if we're going to be hot-tempered, we just need to know where that's going to lead and the kind of dynamic that's going to produce. And I think the Bible is so helpful here because we don't always realize the decisions we make where it's going to go. And the Bible's helpful by saying this is what it produces. Is that what you want? So then he says in verse 18, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Doesn't this remind you of the opening verse of the chapter? We saw this weeks back in chapter 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. This is the same idea, isn't it? In chapter 15, 18, the hot tempered man is the one who has a harsh word. And then in verse 18, slow to anger, quieting contention. That's the soft answer that turns away wrath in verse 1. We have then the same chapter. Speaking about the same idea, just with different words. The hot-tempered person needs to be one who prioritizes love. He who is slow to anger. Doesn't that sound like the Lord? When the Lord declares His name to Moses in the book of Exodus, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's hard to be abounding in love when we are hot-tempered. In other words... The the slow to anger is an emphasizing of the Lord's self-control and and righteous indignation in things. And not given to uh, passions of the flesh. When it says, he who is slow to anger quiets contention, we we might be able to detect that resonance from Exodus to say, well, you know what Solomon's wanting? He's wanting us to reflect the character of the Lord. That being slow to anger is not a weak thing, it's a God thing. It's a godly thing. He who is slow to anger quiets contention. It's not because that solves the issue. It's just that you can deal with issues when we are not adding to that needless offensive speech and words that escalate conflict. It's about de-escalating so that conflict can be resolved and not blown out of proportion. Our anger doesn't help matters. It makes them worse. It's like seeing a fire. You think, okay, this fire, it's small. We can deal with that. But, but anger, anger takes gasoline, throws that on the fire, and now it's so much bigger and everybody's got to stand back. That's what that kind of explosiveness of the acts of the flesh results in. So you know what we need with verse 18 here is we need Paul from 1 Corinthians 13. That love is not rude. Love does not insist on its own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. In 1 Corinthians 13, we realize love is patient and love is kind. We read the fruit of the Spirit that love is the chief and first of the fruits of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. And you see gentleness, self-control among the terms Paul is, is putting out. In other words, Proverbs 15 is about the Christian life. When we read this, we see it confirmed in the New Testament. God is making us into a certain kind of people. Who ought to long to be formed in certain ways. Don't you want to be formed as someone slow to anger and quieting contention? That takes a lot of deliberation. It requires us to think about what's going to be best for the people in my life. Not my hot temperedness. That's what's not going to be best. Instead, what's going to be best for the people in my life? Being patient with them. 
restraining my speech, giving careful thought to what I'm going to say, weighing my words so that we can produce a peaceable and profitable result with this so that conflict is not escalated and out of control. In other words, it's in your best interest because don't you want healthy relationships? What's in your best interest is being slow to anger. Angry words may feel good, but they do harm. People who are frustrated at a situation and they spout off at the mouth to people they know or people they don't know. It happens in every all kinds of ways in person, on social media. You pick all the realms and avenues. There's all kinds of factors here. Angry words may feel good at the time, but they do damage. Self-control leads to better relationships. When we look at what is better in verses 16 and 17, fear of the Lord, that's vertical. Love at the table in verse 17, that's horizontal. That our love and fear of God and our love for others, one of the things that will manifest in is in our relational dynamics like speech and actions. I do think we need a glad heart in evil days. That's what I've titled this message tonight. A glad heart in evil days. That's what I want for me. Don't you want that? Then when you look at all the afflicted days around us and the hardships that we face... Don't you want your heart to be rooted in what is true and loving what is good and formed and shaped in a way that you have a cheerful heart because you love what is good? I want a glad heart in evil days. It doesn't mean everything's going to work out like you wish it would. It doesn't mean circumstances are always going to seem favorable. Somebody asked John Piper about this some years back and he was reflecting on how so much of life just doesn't unfold the way we thought it would. Somebody asked him, well, what should we do about this? And Piper's answer was, well, you should occasionally weep over the life that you hoped would be. You should grieve the losses and feel the pain. And Piper says, then wash your face, trust God and embrace the life he's given you. That there's a real submission to the providence of God that is hard. And we think about Dreams we may have had when we were younger. Oh, I imagine my life going this way, in this direction, and these people, in this location, in this job. And then life unfolds, and decades pass, perhaps. And you think, well, things haven't turned out the way that I wish they were. And particular turns in the road that I would have never seen coming. Then, then listen to the words of Piper, because he says, you know, there's a real sense in which we can mourn that. We can feel a sense of loss because of what we had hoped for. But then there is still a resolve, nevertheless, to wash your face, trust the Lord, and embrace your life. That in these evil days, you can have a glad heart before God because God is God, full of steadfast love and mercy, and everything is going to be all right because He will raise the dead and make all things new, and He will wipe the tears from our eyes. I have a friend named Gunnar who pastors in Houston, and he says, It's tempting to think that in turbulent times, Christians must become something special or unprecedented to be effective. But that's not true. Gunnar goes to explain the wisdom of God's word, the fruit of his spirit, the bonds of love, and the power of genuine character. That is still the way. 
That is still the way. So in evil days, you know, what do we need? We don't need something new, something flashy and spectacular. We need the wisdom of God's word, the fruit of his spirit, the bonds of Christian love and godly character. That's always been true. Sometimes you hear this language. We live in unprecedented times. And a friend on social media said, don't you miss precedented times? (laughs) I'm tired of living in unprecedented times. And I totally get the tongue-in-cheek statement there. And we want to follow that up, though, with the serious note. But what is still the way? The way of the disciple of Christ. And my friend is right. The wisdom of God's Word, the fruit of His Spirit, the bonds of love, and the power of godly character. That is always unalterably true. And we know this because of the way we sing. When peace like a river attendeth my way... Because there are seasons like that. When sorrows like sea billows roll, there are seasons like that. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray.